Welcome to the online sermons at King Street Church. Feel free to listen or watch online at kingstreetchurch.com. We're located at 162 East King Street in the heart of Chambersburg, PA, and would love to see you in person at one of our five Sunday services at 8.15, 9.45, or 11 a.m. We certainly hope you enjoy this morning's message. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Wow, that's awesome. Palm Sunday. You know what, church? Not much has changed in 2,000 years or just under since this day occurred on, early on a, on a first day of the week, a Sunday morning. The crowd's crying out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. In fact, let's let that be our cry today. Uh, here in the sanctuary, over in the Baker Center, let's cry out. In fact, this half of the room over here, to my right, cry out, Hosanna. And I'd love the left half to, to echo back, Lord, save us. Let's try it. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Again, Hosanna, Lord, save us. One more. Hosanna, Lord, save us. That's our cry today. It's exactly what these crowds were shouting for. Lord, save us. God, we need your help. It's exactly what we feel and experience today. And I think Palm Sunday is, uh, is a great connection also to the theme that we are preaching through this year of transformation. Do you know what Jesus did the first thing after he passed through the golden gate, you saw it there in the video. It's the, the eastern gate, the golden gate, the beautiful gate. In Hebrew, it's called the gate of mercy or the chesed gate. Do you know the first thing that Jesus did is he marched through or rode on this donkey through that gate. He went right up into the temple grounds. In fact, the eastern gate is the, is the gate that leads you directly onto the temple grounds the Temple Mount. 
Jesus went directly into the temple. And do you know what he did? He, the language we now use all these years later, is he cleansed it. He overthrew tables. He, he, he grabbed a whip and he began driving out those that were using the temple and the temple grounds as a place of, of commercialization, of making money. They had turned it from a place that was designed and intended to be intensely spiritual, intensely God-honoring and God-focused, holy, and they had profaned it and made it a place of commerce and a place of selfishness and a place of greed. And Jesus literally transformed that temple mount personally as he marched into the temple on that Palm Sunday. He brought spiritual life to that, uh, to that location, to that place and we're talking this month in light of spiritually alive, our theme this month of April, specifically with the phrase, all things new. God makes all things new. Last week, we looked at Psalm 40 and how David cried out, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. And he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This image of lifting us out of the slimy pit out of the muck and the mire of life. I ran across a, a, a quote, a phrase, by what was probably my favorite seminary professor. I went to a place called Fuller Theological Seminary out in Pasadena uh, 30 years ago. And um, my favorite professor was, uh, was a professor of ethics named Dr. Lewis Smeads. Dr. Smeeds, he had these ethic classes, ethics classes that had to go into the largest classrooms, 250 people that Fuller had. Why? Because every student at Fuller wanted to take a Dr. Smeeds class. There was just something about him. Dr. Smeeds had a gentle way, a wisdom. He was just a unique man. He would begin his classes with prayer that went on for like 10 minutes. And it was just, it was the way that he prayed. Just, there was such insight. And I ran into this quote of Dr. Smeeds this week. And I, I thought about this. About how we need a new song. What we all have in common, Dr. Smeeds said, is a sense that everything is all wrong where it matters most. What we desperately need is a miracle of faith to know that life at the center is all right. Wow. What we all have in common is a sense that everything is all wrong. You know what? You can't watch the news for one minute without getting that sense, can you? Everything is broken. It's all wrong. 
Hundreds of people, thousands of people being gassed. Children and women. Wars and rumors of wars around the globe. Tensions mounting. North Korea saber rattling as they say. In the, we just can't watch the news without this sense that everything is all wrong where it matters most. It, it just, it affects us. And you know, this doesn't just go to the national stage. This is in our lives personally. Folks, I don't have to tell you anything new. Things are broken in this world. I think about my own family two weeks ago. My wife and I and two of our kids went down to uh, see uh, our, our two oldest sons. One is in Charlotte, one is in Greenville. But we spent uh, an evening, Friday night of a couple weekends ago, with my niece and her husband, Brian, Christy and Brian. They have three young children, five, three, and one. And uh, we just had a real nice visit with them. It was the first time we'd been in Brian and Christy's home. And it was good to get caught up with them. But the whole evening, little Ethan, the one-year-old, 13 months, he just didn't feel well. He had been down for a nap all afternoon. And, and uh, he had been, for actually a month or two, just not well at all. They had had, had him in and out of the clinic, the pediatrician. They were wondering if, wasn't he, had, if he didn't have some drainage going on. So they put a little tube in. And, and yet, you know, he was just aching and not well and arching his back. And so they woke him up. He woke up for dinner and we got to to hold Ethan a little bit, really connect with him. Well, that was two weeks ago. Last weekend, little Ethan, uh, Brian, a week ago Friday, was changing Ethan's diaper, and he felt, uh, he just noticed his belly was a little lopsided and called the pediatrician, and the doc said, you know, you probably ought to take him into emergency. So they did, thought it was maybe some obstruction or some, something that would cause that bloating, they took some x-rays and discovered a major mass in his belly. Ethan's 13 months old. And uh, this last week has been just uh, a nightmare. Um, they found out that it is neuroblastoma. It's spread to his lymph system. It's in his bones. Uh, little Ethan, is, um, he's got a battle going on right now. In fact, the prayer today, if you would join us in praying for Ethan today, I just got a text in between services, he had a bad night. Uh, the, the, they started chemo two days ago, and it's working so well, if you will, that his kidney is now backed up because of all the, the dying cancer cells that are having to get run through his little kidney, that it's stopped it up. And uh, so let's, let's pray, if you would, for, for Ethan. Join us in prayer. Why do I say that? It's because we all have in common a sense that everything is all wrong where it matters most. What we desperately need is a miracle of faith that God would set our feet on a rock and give us a firm place to stand. What we need is a miracle of faith to know that life at the center as Dr. Smeeds put it, and I get it, that life at the center is all right. Here we are on Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday of any Sunday of the year ought to, re ought to remind us, church, that we have a new king. 
that Jesus Christ is in charge. The only way we're going to experience this deep, deep understanding that life at the center is all right is when we understand and know and believe a miracle of faith that God is in charge, that he has everything under control. And I want us to think very specifically this morning about this clear teaching of Scripture that Jesus is the King of Kings. Would you turn with me all the way back to Genesis 49? I want to just show us a few verses today that anchor our faith in this, in this understanding that Jesus is the King. This story here in Genesis chapter 49 is of Jacob in, in his last few days on earth, blessing his 12 sons, blessing Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and, and, and pronouncing a spirit-filled blessing over these boys. And he gets to his fourth born, born, Judah. And what he says to Judah begins in verse 9. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who, who dares to rouse him? Now get this. Wow. The scepter will not depart from Judah. What is a scepter? It's nothing other than a, a staff that goes into the hands of a king. It is a king's rod. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. Judah, out of your lineage will come none other than a king. He to whom it comes. A clear prophecy that the king of kings is going to come from the line of Judah. And then it says this, the obedience of the nations shall be his. Wow. The obedience of the nations. This is not going to be a localized king, a regional king. This is a global king. This is a, a worldwide king. David, 500 years later, joins in that very same prophecy. Look with me, please, to Psalm 24. The 24th Psalm, and again, the very same Holy Spirit that came over Jacob when Jacob prophesied the king will come from the line of Judah. Guess who also came from the line of Judah? King David. But yet David understood he was not the one to whom this described. For David himself then declares in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas, establishing it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. 
Does this sound familiar? Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Clearly pointing to a Messiah, a Savior. And it's very interesting language that David describes here. Lift up your heads, what? You gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The image here, clearly, that God gave David is of a king coming through a gate. Ancient doors through which the king would ride. I had the opportunity four and a half years ago to visit Israel and Jerusalem. I took this picture from the Mount of Olives facing west. That makes this wall right here the eastern wall of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's just above the the Kidron Valley and right down at the bottom of the valley, right down here, is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. An olive grove of olive trees. And we have here, let me zoom in on on this spot right here. This is the Temple Mount. And this gate right here is one of eight gates that lead into the old city of Jerusalem. And there's something that you you ought to immediately notice. In fact, I took this next picture from uh, down from the Garden of Gethsemane looking up at this ancient gate. What's the one thing that's obvious about that gate, right? It's sealed. It's sealed shut. It's the one of the eight gates that leads into Jerusalem that is sealed shut. And just another thing that's noteworthy is that right in front of it, of all things, is a cemetery. A cemetery. Dead bodies uh, lie there in front of this ancient Gate. Now, what we see here in, in uh, prophecy is that Jesus will not only ride through this gate. Now, I, I will say here, it's not exactly. This is a rebuilt gate on the very location, the very site, the foundation where the, the gate that Jesus would have rode through 2,000 years ago. We know that 70 years after, I'm sorry, 40 years after Jesus rode through this gate, it was torn down by the Romans in 70 AD. But we also know that 430, 450 years later, in the 500s, this gate was rebuilt. It was rebuilt, as were many of the walls. And so the gate that you're looking at right there is on the foundation of the ancient gate of the eastern gate, the beautiful gate, the golden gate. It's on the exact location. So why is it sealed? Well, it's, it's sealed because in the year 1540 A.D., 500 years ago, a Turkish Muslim ruler marched into Jerusalem and took over Jerusalem. He rebuilt many of the walls. Much of the walls around the old city of Jerusalem were built by this ruler by the name of Suleiman the Magnificent 500 years ago. 
But this particular gate dates back 1,500 years. And Suleiman, as he was rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem, the walls, he, he heard about a ruler, a conquering king that would ride through this gate. And in order to stave off this ruler, this king, what did he do 500 years ago? He sealed the gate, 16 feet of concrete. And not only that, but he put in front of it a cemetery because he had heard that this king would also be a priest and he believed that no priest worth his salt would walk through a cemetery that would walk through dead bodies. So 500 years, this has been the scene. But I want us to think about what prophecy described. That first of all, Jesus in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that he would march through that gate. You probably know this verse. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then we see in Matthew Chapter 21, that Jesus marched through that very same golden gate, that eastern gate, fulfilling the prophecy. In fact, let me just read it for you. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, go to the village and untie this colt. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through Zechariah, say to to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus came through that very gate, the eastern gate, the golden gate. Now, what I want us to see today is uh, I want to take you to one other passage in Ezekiel of all places. Would you please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 44? Because it's It's very interesting what we read here. This is a prophetic passage that describes the Temple Mount, the very place we were just looking at, only this is future. This is Ezekiel writing in 600 B.C., foreshadowing or looking at seeing a vision of a future temple, a temple that has not even yet been built, yet it describes the gates around the temple. The gates around this temple that even to this day have not yet, that has not yet been built. But look at what Ezekiel sees. When he sees the future and the new temple, he says, Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east. And it was, what? Shut. Wow. You think Suleiman the Magnificent knew 500 years ago that he was fulfilling prophecy? Hmm. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. Past tense. Palm Sunday. 
The prince himself is the only one who may still sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. He is to enter by way of the portico of the gateway and go out the same way. Interestingly, as I was studying for the message this week, back in 1967, in June of 67, it was the six-day war, six days that, that Israel recaptured the Temple Mount from the Jordanians. The Jordanians had control of the Temple Mount and literally right in front of the eastern gate was a, a, a brigade, a squadron, a troop, I don't know, a group of soldiers that wanted to overtake the Jordanians and they literally contemplated blasting through the eastern gate. And the commander of that Israeli squadron said, no, even though it would take the Jordanians by surprise, we cannot enter through this gate. Why? Because he knew this passage. No one may enter through it is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. The prince himself is the only one who is to enter that gate. Look back at chapter 43. The man brought me to the gate facing east and I saw the glory of the Lord the God of Israel coming from the east, his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. The land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River. And I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. The Spirit of God, the glory of God, Jesus himself marches through this gate. And church, we know from the book of, book of Revelation exactly how that will happen. Let me just read it for you. Join me with me if you'd like in Revelation 19. Beginning in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, a white horse. No longer riding on a donkey, symbolizing meekness and peace, the next time Jesus rides through that gate, that gate, opened, he will be on a white horse with justice. He judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus is the king. I want to make three points as I wrap up this message today. Actually, these three points are very similar to each other. The first point is this. God is in charge. Second point. God is in charge. And the third point, very much like the first two. God is in charge. Church, we need to understand that God, even when we walk through this muck of life, this common sense that everything is all wrong, what we desperately need is a miracle of faith that life at the center is all right. How do we have that church? It's believing and knowing that Jesus is the King that he is in charge and on the throne, that all things are under his control. Nothing is out of his control. And as we come to this table today, 
as we come to this table of communion, it is understanding that this is a feast that Jesus instituted that he will celebrate with us again. Where? At the wedding feast of the Lamb. (laughs) That as Jesus took the bread and as he took the cup that night before he was crucified, he said, I will eat this with you again when I eat it with you in glory, when I come back as the ruling and reigning king. Church, Jesus is coming back. And as we eat this bread, as we drink this cup, we examine our hearts. We do this as a supreme act of faith, as God's covenant people, believing with all of our hearts that life at the center is all right because Jesus is the king. Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, we come professing that we believe, Lord God, we believe that you are in charge and that all things are all right because of your reigning glory. God, thank you. Thank you that we get to partake of this meal together, that we get to come to this table and celebrate who you are, what you've done for us, and that we are your people forgiven, redeemed, and filled with power from on high. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this morning's message. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to contact us using our online form on our website at kingstreetchurch.com or by calling us here at 717-264-4651 during our regular business hours. Be sure to stop by and see us in person at one of our five Sunday morning services, 8.15 a.m., 2 at 9.45 a.m., as well as 2 at 11 a.m. We look forward to seeing you there.